Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we share the journey of a man who faced a unique near-death experience. After spending five days in an ICU in New York City, he was isolated, not allowed food or water. He was not coherent or comprehending enough to communicate with his loved ones. He was too scared to go to sleep in case he didn't wake up. We're going to learn how he used his love for music to elevate his spirit, mend his heart, and realize what was really important in his life. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Practicing Death. My guest in this episode is Jerry Murphy. He's a 54-year-old Scot, born and raised in Glasgow. He's a 30-year career in, as a marketing executive for some of the biggest retail brands on both sides of the Atlantic, and is the author of a new book. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Michael, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. I mean, obviously, I want to talk about your near-death experience because when most people think of a near-death experience, they think of the going to the light thing and seeing something on the other side and coming back. So you come to a unique approach to it. But before we get that, let's talk about uh, where you come from. So where did you grow up? Grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. You know, so in the you know, 60s child, born in 65. Um, you know, Glasgow is, uh, it was nicknamed in those era, in that era, no mean city. It was a tough place to grow up. Um, gangs, shipbuilding city. So all, all of the stuff that was associated with that. So, so I lived there into my early teens and then my parents moved us out to the suburbs to give us a better chance, you know, and to give us a chance to come through and do what we wanted to do. And that, you know, and that's where we, that's where we kind of, I did the more formative years and followed that back into the city for university, Strathclyde University. And, and then with first marriage, got married and stayed around that whole neighborhood again. So kind of like hometown boy for a while, although I traveled a lot. So your university was, you went back to Scotland for university? Or back I, stayed there, university. I stayed there, yeah, yeah, I stayed there. My, my, my parents actually moved south for my dad's work at the time, so I left home at 16, so I was out my own at university at 16, so kind of gives you a very different view of life, but um, but yeah, no, but it was, it was nothing, there's nothing to complain about there at all, it was like, it was as good a childhood as you could wish for, and you know, three sisters, they're all younger than me, you know, and so in varying degrees of connection with them just because of proximity in years and, you know, what you go through at different times, right, you know, so, um, so, so yeah, so the kind of model childhood really, you know, in and, and a, and a great city which is really about, you know, family and homely spirit, you know, and, and really once you're, you're never, they say that if you're from Glasgow, you're never alone, right, because there's always somebody, you know, and it, it always feels that way. Always. One of my one of my favorite people is from Glasgow, Billy Conley. Oh, Billy, well, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the era slightly before me, you know, just before me. But but you know, he grew up. We grew up knowing exactly who he was, and he was sort of the poster child for this is how you make it, you know. And, you know, from kind of from being a shipbuilder himself, and you know, he his his big line was in Glasgow. They used to open the school gates and the shipyard gates, and you would just flood from one place to the other. And that was how the city was really built, you know. Oh, be darn! I didn't know that. That's pretty. That's interesting, actually. And I, you know, I'm going to ask this because it, I find I find this particularly interesting. You you said you went to university at 16. Is that typical? I mean, I just turned 17 when I went. That can be. You can you can come out of high school after um, five years. So you can you can depending on your age grouping and just in how you sit in the calendar, you can come out and just you know I turned 17 in the August. And started university like two weeks later. 
How is university compared to the United States? Um, it, it, what's the, is it like still four year university, I'm assuming? You can do three or four, just depending on the, 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 the course, you know, that you're doing. Um, I ended up doing sort of three, three and a half, three and a half years in total. Um, I, I studied Italian and marketing, so I spent some of my time in Italy itself. Um, so that you know, kind of counts as a sort of um, a contribution to your degree, let's call it that, right? You know, so it's, but, but, but I mean, like from a contribution to your life perspective, just like an experience that you would never shake, you know? Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. So, um, you learned your marketing from there. You, you're a thirty-year marketing executive. Yeah, yeah. So, the, I mean, it's interesting because you know when we when we did that, we went through that course. There was no internet or anything like it, right? You know, and so everything we learned is redundant for the most part, other than the fundamentals. I think of marketing are to understand why your customer does what he or she does. You know, and I've I've just been curious about that my whole career. You know, and still am, still am really curious about why people do what they do. And this, not quite the psychology or the neuroscience of it, but just the behavioral element of it. So I work a lot with data now and, you know, and, and trying to stitch together data into stories that brands can use to, to galvanize and grow their business. And so that's that's kind of where I spend my time right now. Yeah, that's a very interesting career. My youngest daughter is actually into marketing. That's what she does now, digital media and marketing. Long I'm sure, especially your journey, like you said, long, long way from from the way you, the old school way of doing it to now with social media and digital marketing and you know everything done, especially the way everything's done right now. Yeah, um, that's pretty. That's pretty crazy, actually. And you've worked for some of the biggest brands on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, I've been, I've been just lucky. You know, I was lucky to kind of follow a career path that I. Um, I mean, there's, there's part of the story in terms of when we get to, you know, when we get to kind of what happens, but. You know, I, I, I had a you know, strong career path and pretty much went where I wanted to go, which was, you know, you know, a blessing in, in itself. But, you know, but a curse at some level, too, which we'll talk about. Well, you um, you uh, you met your wife in, in, in Scotland? Well, no. So my first wife was my high school sweetheart. And then we got divorced after 18 years. And then um, I met someone else at work through an American company. And that's why I ended up in the States. I was going to ask you what brought you to the United yeah, States. Love, Wales, Michael, Wales, love, love. <laughs> Just, love doesn't love it take us in so many different areas? <laughs> I mean, more than any other, probably, right? Oh uh, yeah, it drives everything, and yeah, it drives everything. <laughs> if you let it, if you let it, well, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly, and then you have kids too. We have something in common. Uh, we both have a daughter that's the same name. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I have two older children from my first marriage, Kevin and Caitlin. Um, 31 and 29 and I've got Frances in my second marriage and she's eight and in the room behind me trying to be ha- behave and be quiet <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I relate my, mine are, are old enough now that I don't have to worry about that but I do have a dog that keeps bothering me during these <laughs> always wants to go out at the wrong time so love brought you to New York City yep so when did you move to New York City uh, it's about so Francis A. So about nine years ago now, you know, it's just about nine years. Um, you know, I'd, I'd I'd been recruited by a couple of brands to come over here and do some work for them here anyway, you know. So, um, so there was a, a kind of call. My wife and I, Jennifer, we met at work, you know. So we were kind of transatlantically dating for a couple of years, and then the opportunity. And we just decided, well, what are we going to do here? Are we going to 
you kind of nurse this thing along are we going to go for it and you know lucky enough to say we decided to go for it and here we are you know and so Francis we came into our lives 18 months later and you know that's been just been a joy you know I went to a high school reunion not that long ago and I had the oldest kid and the youngest kid so I was like I think I won all the prizes for that right <laughs> <laughs> so what a contrast <laughs> But it's the greatest joy, though. The three of them are so close, even though distance and age is, you know, is, you know, very, very different for them. Um, they're so close, and that's that's my greatest joy when the three of them are together. Well, it's a great family upbringing, I think. You know, you, you know, the family, you, coming from my background and then coming from a law enforcement background, watching families in situations, you know, uh, having a loving family is a key to success in yeah. And man, I won't say managing that family, but in um, in that family dynamic, it al- it allows it to grow and nurture the way it's supposed to. Do you have I, think if you, I think if you get the balance right and you invest properly, and that's part of my story is that I didn't have that just the way it should have been. I think you know, and that was part of my sort of um, could have been my re- my swan song regret, if you will, you know, in terms of like is. As I face that one more thing before you go, that was that was one of the things to say. Like, yeah, th- th- this the, didn't I didn't get this right. This wasn't as balanced as it should have been. Well, what, what you know? Let's talk about that. What put you into the ICU? It's a freak, freak disease or, or happenstance, I guess, is what you would call it. it wasn't really a disease. I'd I'd been training for a marathon and um, I tore my knee up, so I had to go in for a, knee, a routine knee surgery. Did I mean, tore meniscus? Nothing dramatic, you know, and so. Should have been routine, um, but within forty hours, I was running a fever, which was you know almost beyond what the human body could take, and so I got taken to ICU. I couldn't control. Them. I was losing control of my faculties in every which way you can imagine. I had what they call I now know they call them medical rigors. So it's basically convulsing violently for an unspecified amount of time, up to forty-five minutes. You know, it's just like you're out of control. You know, and you swing from. Like you know, like desert temperatures to to tundra temperatures, if you will, you know, and and so your body's trying to counterbalance what's going on, but can't, you know, and because it, because the temperature was so extreme, so uh, we 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 went you know the hospital here in New York is only ten blocks south of the apartment, so got an ambulance down there, and you know, and went in, got admitted, um, which was a surprise to me because I didn't really think, you know, kind of one of those things where you kind of go. Um, you know, what's, what's going on to when am I getting out? And they're going, oh, you're not going anywhere, you know? And so, right. you know, and so I had, it was weird because I had this external temperature of like just under 100, but my internal temperature was 107. Wow. So it was just fierce, you know? And so, you know, they were feeding me bags of fluid, you know, and, and I was sweating it all out, you know? And so I was in bad shape. And then, you know, in the ICU admissions, you know, um, nurse came down and, and the next thing I know, I was getting whisked away to ICU and, you know, and that kind of started sort of what I call five days of purgatory on earth in the sense that nobody knew what was wrong. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was in real trouble because I was really suffering um, from these these regulars were taking over and I couldn't control it. And, you know, and, and so I guess that's the moment when you realise you, you've, got, you've got real challenges right now and then you start to kind of consider and reflect and think through and, you know, and try and find comfort in whatever you can. And mine was music and memories of effectively of people that I'd, you know, passed time with, spent time with, friends, 
acquaintances, all of that sort of thing. And and I was left to reflect on whether I'd invested in those relationships in the right way or whether I'd underinvested. And you know, and so you so we left with five days of not much other than machines and oxygen and you know and fluid injections and things like that you know and, and really not really get any idea what's going to happen next you know so it just kind of there was no like you said in your intro there's no bright shining light that was calling me near it or anything like that i was just stuck in this spot the, the irony for me is one of my favorite books of all time is dante's l'inferno you know which obviously is, talks about purgatory and all of that and that's what it felt like you know no food no water no love or companionship or limited love or companionship because I was sort of isolated. My wife was allowed in, but because we had a then one-year-old, there was no, we didn't have any support. So she, she couldn't just kind of drop everything because that included an, a child, you know, and so you right. go, you go to take care of that, you know, and so, and so, um, but, you know, I mean, and, and I was scared to go to sleep because I really, sometimes I didn't feel like I was going to wake up. And that, this is before COVID. Obviously, it's before COVID. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting the impact that has and how you treat COVID, how I've treated COVID for the last fifteen months. Go, I've still got sort of comorbidity, I guess, is what they've been calling it. You know, I've still got weakness in my, you know, in my immune system and things like that because I had multiple surgeries after all of this. But, um, but actually, psychologically and emotionally, because I'd seen this adversary before. I actually felt quite centered through most of COVID because I knew I just had to, to kind of internalize it and work out what my approach was going to be and how I was going to handle it. And I just stuck to that for 15 months, you know? And so that's really, that's really how it's helped me a lot, you know, just give me more balance. aspect of it. Now your particular situation, were you, um, were you comatose at all or were you were still cognitive or somewhat? You know, cognitive? Sometimes, you know, I, I talk about this in the book and at one point I posted to social media to try and assure everybody that I was doing okay. And, and really all I did was start the hairs running on absolute frighteners because it made no sense to anybody apart from me, you know, so it was one of those, one of those moments where you think that should keep everybody comfortable and they read it and they went, what the hell is going on? You can laugh at it, but, I, when, but at the time I thought I was quite kind of socially media, social media smug after it saying that should, that should keep everybody cool, you know, but no, that was the, it was the opposite effect. You know, I mean, I guess it's, you know, like it was, you referred to Dante's Inferno, Inferno and, and the situation you were in, the purgatory. Let's talk about those feelings. Because obviously, um, to help people understand where you were at, because I went through surgery in my past. I've, I've gone through seven surgeries, actually. Just finished one recently, as most of my listeners understand. I spent a few days in the hospital, and and but I wasn't as restricted as you. I didn't have to... I didn't have to go through the same feelings that you went through. Um, when we get to a certain age, it's, you know, I'm over 60. So you get to a certain age, every time you go into a surgery, you kind of have a question. Yep. You got to kiss everybody goodbye and make sure that you're going to make sure you come out of this. Or am I going to come out of this? Because right. you keep doing this. But in your situation, you were kind of trapped there. Yeah, completely. So, the, I mean, even when they came up with, so, the, so what ended up happening was, through there's all, and, and I feel like you know I, part part of the, the book describes my sort of journey back from sort of 
fallen out with my religion back to a spiritualism that I've kind of created for myself just through study afterwards, trying to kind of recreate the because it was clear divine intervention multiple times in this whole circumstance, multiple times. A radio uh, a radiographer found out that what was I was basically toxic, you know, you know, so through, so they gave me, they call it a barium meal. I've, I've never really worked out what they call it here, but you know, they give you something, you know, um, orally and you take it and then they track it through your body to see where it ends up. So what happened was I'd ruptured my colon and a, and a blood vessel had attached itself to, this rupture, to the rupture. So it's effectively pouring waste into my bloodstream for however long. And nobody really knows however long is, you know, it was just for however long. And so, so I had E. coli, colitis, sepsis. I had it all going on, you know. And so, you know, I had a, a doctor for infectious diseases who was this, you know, grey-haired, pristine gentleman who was like right off one of the TV shows from the seventies or eighties, right? You know, and but he was an absolute gent, you know, and he was quietly spoken, and you know, it gave you tons of confidence that they would work it out, and, you know, and just you know, so almost like these you know, these important people who are doing their job essentially, but ultimately, you know, guiding you from this purgatory to a different spot, hopefully, or or seeing you through your the end of your journey, right? You know, so right. so you know, and he would come in and say things like, Wow, you're doing remarkably well considering and it would be like, and I would almost like see the, the speech bubble with a dot, 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 you know, and I'd like, <laughs> what, what exactly? You know, and so and so without anybody actually saying, look, you, you, this is this is bad news, you know, we're, you know, um, I knew, I knew for sure, you know, and, and so, and then, and to, to your point about being trapped, you're trapped in that room. I mean, like, it, it looked over, if you know New York City, I looked over East River and FDR Drive and, you know, and I longed to just put myself in a traffic jam down there. I was, you know, I promised myself I would never complain about that mundanity again if I'd give, given the chance to go through it that I would never get angry or you know or be frustrated that I would just take it for what it is you know and and you know and because it, it gave you perspective but not necessarily the right to do anything with a new perspective and that's what was the challenge and that's what really kind of wore heavy I didn't think about work once I didn't think about money at all you know, you only thought about the people and the places that you've been and they spent time with and your loved ones and, you know, and, and, and so sort of, you know, so it's not how Hollywood portrays it. And, if, and I'm sure it comes to everybody differently, you know, just in terms of how your set of circumstances are or what you feel about how you've lived your life. Um, and then when the surgical sort of process or opportunity made itself aware, I had no choice. So to your point about surgery, you know, I, I, I remember signing a waiver, and it's, it's interesting because when I wrote the book, and I wrote the book about signing the waiver, which effectively said, we think it's this. If it's not this, this is what we will do. If it's not that, that's what we'll do. And if and if, if it all goes wrong, then sign here to say it's not our fault. Well, You know, and so you're kind of going, I have no choice. There is no right. choice here. You know, and so, so you're just kind of, you just kind of, you know, pushed into this corner. And when I wrote the book about that particular time in the journey and time in the story, I actually found myself crying because I was kind of grieving for that moment that when I had no choice, now I had a chance to reflect on it and think, well, that was pivotal in the sense that you either make it through this or you don't. But here's when you realise that this is the point of realisation where, this, you know, 
when you go under, you may come back if you're lucky, but you may not. Yeah, that's that's you know, that's kind of an that's a very precarious situation that you're into, but without putting yourself into it. It was you were put there, which doesn't give you much control. I mean, like you said, it's just. Exactly. The choices are to to try and ride it out, right? You know, and say, like, can my body overcome this? But medically, all the advice, certainly from the people who had got me that far, you know, was you've got to go for this. Well, you had, you, I'm sure it, it told me, I mean, I'm thinking about this the whole time. I'm sure that you had to, you again reflected on your life, so to speak. So it's almost, when you look at these near-death experiences people are talking about where they're put in a room and they're set up and then their life plays in front of them and they decide what what they did right and what they did wrong and who was important and who wasn't and who they forgot and who they didn't, you know, kind of a situation. Um, It it, it was played out, but it was played out in a hospital bed. Yeah, yeah, and and that's why I felt it was my own personal purgatory on earth because... Because you, the, the purgatorial element being, you don't know if you're going to get back to kind of write some of this, you know, to kind of re, you know, so I made a list in that hospital bed and said, these are the things I'm going to do. The minute, if, if I'm spared and I get a chance to, these are the things I'm going to go and do. And, and, they, and they were fairly, had enough about me to know that it shouldn't be massive things. It should be little things that just edge you closer to the life that you want to be. Because the other reality is when you come through it, there's a bit, there's obviously a bit of guilt, you know, because people have gone through far worse and not survived. And, you know, and so you, you kind of share that sort of sense of loss for other people who didn't have that opportunity to come back. So there's a bit of a burden attached to it and a sense of responsibility to say, but don't waste this chance now, right? You know, and so it's kind of like whether it's a second chance or a second pass through or whatever you want to call it, you know, that. that that's definitely a burden there, but you've got to do it at your own pace and you've got to work it out for yourself in terms of well, what are the most important things. And so I made a list of the people who had fallen out of my life, partly through my own sort of behaviour, if you will, um, and choices and, and, and decisions and um, decided that the first thing I do is start to get back in touch with these people because they were on my mind when it mattered most. And if nothing else, if it couldn't be repaired or if it wasn't, of interest anymore to anybody. The very, the very least I wanted them to know, you were on my mind when I thought it was near the end. And take from that what you will, but I take that, that, that there's something there we should be exploring. So it was my university buddies, people I'd worked with early in my career that I'd moved away from, all of that sort of stuff. And you know, and unfortunately, being able to kind of put those relationships back together again as much as I can with three thousand miles between me and them, you know. But but. But it just it just gave you a framework that I'd I'd lost sight of, you know. Well, that, that I mean that fits perfectly into one more thing before you go. Completely. Is allowing individuals you need to take that one more thing um, before you before you go in order to let people know now, tell them now, love them now, you know, yeah. make amends with them now, because you never know what's going to happen. Right. And that's yeah, where that yeah. principle of the book talks about in the second half. So the first half is the story of my illness. The second half is the ramifications and repercussions for my life and things that I've gone on to make more mistakes and try and course correct on them because it's not Hollywood. So it doesn't. There's no straight path back to redemption or anything like it. You're still going to. You, you, you've got a ton of 
behavioural instinct that's been accrued over the years, and, be, and breaking that down is still quite difficult. Um, but you've just got to be resilient and push through and just remember. And so practising death is that concept to say, if this was your last day, what would you do? Or if you were in that hospital bed and put yourself in proxy for me that day, what would be your reflection on your own life? And what would you change as a result? You know, and that's where you simply just make a list. You know, and like some of the things will be small, some of the things will be huge. And then you just go channeling your energy towards that. Because I know I'll be back in that spot, however it comes to me, right? There's nothing sure. It will come again. And the next time round, if it's not, if it's not a better reflection or a more content sense of leaving, that's on me. It's not on anything else. Yeah, it makes it change your life profoundly. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, how did music play into that? So music, so music's always been my kind of constant companion. I always say it's my first love. You know, I kind of always been around music and you know, just I mean, not but not like my parents were musicians or anything like that. You know, it was just like I just connected to music at a very early age. I remember watching you know, like American TV shows on TV back in the UK when I was five or six. And I remember songs from 50 years ago that I've carried with me and I'm not really sure why until now, you know, like I was like, you know, like Andy Williams, The Impossible Dream. I know that, I still, I still know every, I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. I can remember every word, right? You know, and so, so it's just the connection was so much more fibrous, I think, you know, and, and so when I was on my own in the hospital and, you know, listening to music as my companion when I didn't have anybody else around. It took me back to people and places and events and feelings. And so I've expanded my horizon, even though it was limited. And it just, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of played its part in the whole story. And, you know, I'm a reasonable singer, not a brilliant singer. And and so I've always wanted to be in a band. I've been in bands all, all my life, really. But I've always wanted to be a rock and roll star and all of that, as you would. Don't we know. all? Right, of course, of course. So the, the book gave me a chance to release it like an album, like an old school vinyl album, right? Two sides. First side is the story of the illness. Second side is the sec- is the second is the next phase after the illness. And how that brilliant. And so each chapter is named after a song, and it's got it's got a couplet. It's just the lyrics that mattered the most when I was going through each part of that sort of both illness and redemption sort of thing. Yeah, that's brilliant. What a brilliant way of putting that forward. You know, it, and I think that'll resonate with people more because what I've learned, and that's part of my what I went through university for myself, is the use of creative arts and healing. And it's interesting to find that music is at top of the list because people can resonate with music and it sticks in our brain and it sets this unique part in our brain and in our heart that we always remember and can reflect back on when we heard it, where we were, what we remember from it, and yeah. even dementia pa- patients and Alzheimer's patients, oh, really? when they, they they could forget so many things, but when a certain song plays that, that they loved as a kid or loved and younger, or it was an important part of their life, that song plays and you see them light up in their smile. A smile comes on their face, so that their eyes light up, or they want to get up and dance, or something. It connects with them in a very unique way, and you experience that. Yeah, I, I, and, and and it's been like I said, it's been my constant companion. And, and to some extent, you wonder why, and then you come through something like this, and 
you know, I think it's taken me a long time to work out my relationship with it, you know, in terms of like, I, I wanted to be that rock star. And, you know, I didn't really die trying, to be honest, you know, because I get sucked into academia a little bit and my career and all of that sort of stuff. But I think, um, you know, the comfort they can afford and the ability to listen to a sad song and be happy or the happy song and be sad. And, you know, and the, 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 the multidimensional emotions it creates, there's very little. For me, anyway, you know, and this is personal, but it's, you know, and I wrote it personally. It was for me as much as, and for my kids as much as it was for anything else to tell the story. But I guess the lesson is whatever brings you joy or brings you comfort, then that's, you know, that's the thing you should gravitate towards when you're when you're in that spot. And do you feel that it kind of helped you pull you through this? I did, you know, I think two things pulled me through. My children, you know, you know, because I think, you know, I was really attracted to the title of this podcast, one reason why I wanted to be on. So one more thing before you go, it's like that, that when, when you've got kids, that will never end, right? And you're going to have that feeling on your deathbed regardless, whether it comes to your 55 or 75 or whenever. You know, you're going to have that sense of, I wish I could be here for just one more thing. And and, I, and it took me that experience to realise that. But then... How many other one one things could there be in the build up to that to make it? At least I got this, 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 and this, you know, and I was able to right. share all of that. And then the, the other part of it was Francis was only one, just about to turn two, and what I couldn't get out of my head was this thought that she just got here, so I can't be leaving, you know. And so this gift late later in my life um, of her coming into our lives, and I'd not been able to share that properly or, or, or experience much of it with her I, you know I you know everybody uses the term fighting for their life I, I've been there and I'm not entirely sure what it means but I think it does mean focused on the things that matter the most to you and use as much you know and let it pull you as hard as it can and, and you know and be drawn to it as hard as you can and and that's not to diminish people who have fought for their lives and lost because there's clearly numbers of diseases and COVID has been another example that it takes over people's lives. And, and that's, you know, you, you know, I've been fortunate that what I had wasn't one of them. So, but, but, but having something to gravitate towards, something that was positive and bigger than you, I think is, you know, it was kind of the, the takeaway from that. That's a good takeaway, actually. I think our, the people... We as human beings and as society need to kind of reflect upon ourselves prior to that taking place and understanding that, again, take the time, sit back. The old cliche, smell, stop and smell the roses. Yeah. You know, it's not just stop and smell the roses. It's stop and, and remember and feel and touch and, you know, and, and human compassion and, and empathy and friendship are something that we all desire and we all need. And sometimes we step away from that and our lives get so busy and caught up that we can never, we, we get we get away from what's important in our lives. And, and it's easy to justify in so many ways, but I think if you can find, if you can, you know, take practicing death example from my book or whatever other practice you want, you know, that kind of gives you the comfort or the opportunity to kind of reflect on, whatever it is that matters the most to you because there's, there's a million excuses of why you can't do something or something else needs to be done or whatever it's such an entitled demanding society nowadays that you know I, I think back to the simplicity of my childhood we started there and I was reflecting on that earlier on and I was just thinking you know like our summers were outside 
in the Scotland and well, well, it wasn't great. I'll tell you that right now, you know. But our summers were outside, and all my memories that were childhood were outdoors, all of them. You know, and so, but then how much time in your kind of working career do you spend outdoors after that? You know, it's like, why do you let yourself drift? You know, I have a triathlete. I, I come, you know, I'm a triathlete, and when I'm fit, I'm a triathlete. And um, my coach said to me the other day, he said, you know, outside of music, the other thing that you light up is when you talk about the ocean. He says, I think you have to find a way to get to the ocean every month, regardless. Hmm, that's interesting. Interesting. As somebody's reflecting back, you know, so but because we've got a strong relationship and a good friendship, the fact that he would take for me, for him to see me light up like that and for him to reflect that back, that's human empathy and human connection telling you and, and support and telling you, saying, go do that. That may help. Yeah, it said, don't wait till the last minute to do your bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> but and I think the bucket list thing is a misnomer anyway, right? You know, it's like it's like all of these things that we've been kind of sucked into bucket list being exotic trips, etc. Whereas there's there's so much they don't have to be. They could be something small. It could be something small. It can be a day away, or you know, a day without technology. I mean, it can be anything you want it to be. You know, and I think practicing death is a way to sort of shine a light on the things that you want to do, and then find a way to deliver them. You know, and but, but being surrounded by people who understand you or see shifts in you, and being able to kind of help, na- you know, you navigate those things. That, that you know, that's I, I'm a stubborn. You know, I come from like I said, Glasgow, no mean city. You grew up independent. I left home at 16. You know, so you've got all of this going on. So you have an independence. You know, so I part of my I used to pride myself in that. I never ask MD for help. That's not me. I don't do that. I don't ask MD for help. Same for her. Right. And so, but since my illness and, you know, and leaning on people to help me come through that and understand it and, you know, even kind of, you know, work on replacing my religion with a spiritualism that I'm comfortable with, you know, all of that's come with the support of other people. And the richness of those relationships and the output of what comes out of them is right. just so, you know, it's so, it's so vibrant and strong and comforting. You know, it gives you so many different emotions. You think, oh, what was I thinking all those years? You know, it's just like a hard-headed clown, you know. So <laughs> you, you live and learn, you know. It, it's an interesting term that you that you said, practicing death. Yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the theme of the second half of the book because I think effectively I thought when I, when I tried to encapsulate how do you how do you translate this story to people to make it personal to them? Well, I, I felt like I was practicing death for those five days because I, you know, and, and some people like you, you you talked about your parents and they were taken from you suddenly, and you know I'm sorry to hear that because there's no there's no real reflection in that. It, you know, there's no time to reflect in that. I was given the other sort of gift of sort of purgatorial sentence of time to think about it. And if I had gone at the end of that, then you know. It, would, it could have been viewed as a kind of punishment to kind of say, here's all the things you realize now you should have done and didn't, and you're out, right? You know, but but I got the other side of that coin, which was got time to reflect on all these things that you could have done, should have done, and you're back in. So now go ahead and, you know, take charge of that and start to think about that a bit better, you know? And I think then, so that the idea of practicing death was to say, if you can, if you can put yourself in my shoes, or somebody else you know who went through something similar that maybe is more relevant to you, if you can find 
a framework or a way to do that, space and time to clear your head to kind of say, what is going on? And I think, I think ironically, COVID has offered a lot of people that reset button without them realizing that it's that reset button. You know, when COVID started, I used to shudder when people say like, oh, we need to get back to normal. I'm not entirely sure our normal was that great. I, I agree. Just, I think it was just the normal. Yeah, you know, and so, and so actually, if you want to reset that, then COVID give you an excuse or a reason, a chance to turn, tear all of that up and really to put it into a different perspective for yourself. If you saw it for that opportunity, if you didn't, then you, you're going to be left sort of, you know, you know, complaining about the last 15 months and what everything has done to you rather than the opportunity it could have afforded you if you'd grasped it by the, 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 the neck. It's kind of a wake-up call. I mean, it's, it. I think a lot of people have really kind of realized, in fact, my wife's uh, work, she spent a year a year and three months working from home, whereas before they never thought that that was even possible where she works. It, it, it was a necessity that came about, but they learned that everybody was more happy, the employees were more happy, the people were more happy, so when they started migrating people back, they came back to a 3-2 schedule. So where you're three days at, in the office and two days at home. So yeah. you have that life balance. And they found that people were uh, are much happier with that work-life balance because they have an opportunity to be home for a couple of days a week, work from home like they had been for the... My wife and I, like I, I told you before, my people know... I, I was a cop. I mean, I was working yeah. all the time before I got injured. Yeah. And then after, I mean, I was in investigations. I, I was out on calls all the time. I got called out in the middle of the night. I got called out of my kids' dance programs and, you know, their plays and things like this. Um, I got called out of a movie, out of dinner. It, it was constant all the time in the middle of the night. And then with her working too, we hardly, we were in that rat race, so to speak. And I know this is your story, but this kind of relates to what we just, we kind of just said. I, I, I think it's everybody's story though, Michael. Exactly. I think it's everybody's story. We've come to a point where over the last year, year and a half, year three, year and three months, you know, we got into a nice routine. We go out in the mornings, instead of her spending an hour, hour and a half on the road going to work, we sat outside and had a cup of tea and listened to the birds and watched the trees and watched the sunrise. Yeah. yeah. It, you know what I mean? It, it changed. And we went, wow, this is, we like this. Yeah. This yeah. is the way it really should be, you know? And it can be if you choose it, right? I mean, if you, exactly, you know, exactly. so that's, and I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing. The interesting thing about COVID is that, you know, this chase for normal is, it's definitely been restated in my head, and for a, to a large extent, COVID played into the hands of some of my own sort of ambition and desire to restate my life. In the sense that Francis, Jen, and I, we knew New York was really bad at the start of COVID, if you remember, and you know, and yeah. so we were never really out over the door for the first couple of months of it, and I never went out. I mean, we, we had friends in the building that were looking for proof of life because they hadn't seen me for three months. You know, I mean, literally, like, can you send a photograph? Oh, yes, he's okay. Newspaper date. <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but that's, you know, and so, and so to, for me, you know, it came along. And like I said, emotionally, I'd seen this adversary before, so I felt okay. 
you know, I felt comfortable. I was nervous about contracting, obviously, just because of my health issues. But, um, but, but that dictated my behaviour. And then I was, I had my daughter and my wife with me the whole time. The biggest, the biggest blow for us is we haven't seen my my two older children for fifteen months, you know, and sixteen months going on. And so that's that's the biggest, you know, um, sort of displacement that we've had, really, you know. And but, but I just concentrated on staying well and staying healthy and. And taking my approach to it, so that when that time comes and we can be together again, we will. So, is New York City still kind of on lockdown? No, it's opened up quite a lot now. Actually, you know, I think the vaccination rate here is pretty high, and you know, and so I think there's a lot of confidence around that. And now that we're heading into summer and more people spend more time outdoors, you know, then I think you know it's much safer outdoors, and, and so it just feels like we're you know. I, I, I shudder to use the word normal, but we're getting back to something we recognize. Let's call it that. that recognize was a good word. I like that. I'm going to borrow that if you don't mind. Yeah, carry on. So you, um, did you make any prior, like when you went into the hospital, it was kind of a sudden thing. Yeah. Um, uh, how did how did you come out of that? Emotionally or physically? Oh, well, both. I mean, did, did, is five days in bed would, would be an issue. Yeah, well, you I, were able I, to I, overcome. Yeah. Um, so the so the sort the first surgery was to remove uh, a large part of my colon. So I had you know so I actually came out of hospital the first time around with a colostomy bag, and you know and I saw a complete change to you know what you would consider a normal routine and all of that sort of stuff. So I had to learn how to use that, and it's all self administered, you know. And so there's no there's very little support for those kind of things. Emotionally, I was I, I kind of ebbed and flowed between confused and angry and guilty and you know and all of that you know i'd like you know and and actually because i knew there was going to be subsequent surgeries because if i was going to get off the colostomy bag i had to have reconnective surgery again so that came three months later so there was a series of like three to six months of just consecutive surgeries which really just take the toll on the body and that's and, and mind actually as you said earlier on because you have these severe doubts every time you go in and um, and so and that hampered my ability to kind of make the changes that I'd promised myself. So I had to keep reminding myself and keep kind of reliving it. And it was only a few years after it that I decided I was going to write the book because I wanted my kids, primarily for my children, I wanted them, because they weren't here. Francis was too young and Kevin and Caitlin were in Scotland. So they didn't know anything of the story. So, and, and as the, and we're not really broadcasters as a family. We don't, you know, it's not something we would share. Jen used social media to keep people up to speed as it was happening, just because that was the quickest way to contact a hundred people. You know, simply, right. right? But you know, but you know, the part of that process on the other side was really like, like let's reconnect and let's start to kind of get this in order and try and work out what the next step is. You know, so it was it was kind of quite remedial in approach actually. You know, and every surgery set you back a little bit and you know, give you a different thing to contend with, you know. And so, and my last surgery was only two years ago and it was arguably the worst one. You know, emotionally for me, I was angry for three months after it because I just felt so bad, you know. I just, you know, just, you know. And, but there, and then there you go, you know, like in, in, in space of three years, I'd gone from saying I'll never take this for granted to being angry because I'd had another surgery, you know. And so this human nature element, you've got to really combat it and try and control it and, and stay on the right balance and the right side of loving your life and not fearing for it and um, 
that you know that that's like that's a constant battle to be honest i can i can empathize with that uh, this is my last surgery my seventh is my uh it's been my toughest journey in yeah. regard to this because it it didn't come out as way the way the other ones had and it's taking longer to recover and there are certain things that are kind of impeding the progress and it gets i go through, i'm angry and you know, the, the difference is I can't punch anything because I can't raise my shoulder yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the, the bag, bag hanging there. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Just, well, you just, I, you know, that's all I can say to you is hang in there and just see you through. You'll come through it and you've come through all the others. And this is, you know, this is another one you've got to step through. But I'm sure you'll make the best of it. I, I believe I will. Thank you. The name of your book is very interesting. It's, and you may find yourself a guided practice to never fearing death again. Do you fear death? Not as much as I used to. Not as much as I used to. It's the, you know, I think it's, I think fear is omnipresent. And it's a question of how much fear you allow into your life. And so the balance is to do the things and be with the people you love and do the things you love and, and focus on that energy. And fear will be there because, you know, I have still children who are still, you know, earlier on in their lives. And I want to be part of that. I have a wife who lost her first husband to cancer, you know, and so I fear, you know, we fear for that situation happening again, you know, but, but it's all kept in check and it's kept in check because we focus on the good stuff and, and trying to be better. I Certainly I try to be better and, you know, and, and be a better husband, a better father, a better you know, brother, a better friend, you know, and so there's fear there. They could all be taken away, particularly in COVID times, right? You know, I mean, it's just like it's right out your outside your front door most of the time, but but it's it's it was well in check, and and you know, and I and I find it's a very balanced way to live. Well, so this, I mean, obviously, it's a very harrowing incident that you had gone through this traumatic. Do you suffer from any PTSD? I don't think so. I don't. I, I think. I think. The, I think if if there was any remnants there, the book was the catharsis I was looking for. You know, and, and being able to to write it out and go through all the emotions of realizing what some little parts were really, rather than what I th what I attributed to them. You know, and so being able to kind of articulate that, and then just being, you know, vulnerably blunt and honest about, you know, some of the things that I think I got wrong, um, I took for granted, and versus the things that I would I wouldn't take for granted now. You know, so I think that's. Um, that's a reward in itself, and so it doesn't feel like a, you know, a trauma per se. I, I, I mean, I still struggle with body pain every day and things like that, but that's that's physical pain, and it's you know, it's just your you, you know, that it's just your ability to some days it's easy to cope with, some days it's not, you know, and it's, it's just a question of navigating it. But you know, in the first part of that, and you may find yourself is lifted from the talking head song Once in a Lifetime from 19, uh, 1981, I think. And, um, you know, and that was the song that was playing in my head the whole time. And you, because it, it finishes with that immortal line, well, how did I get here? And when you're in an ICU bed, there's really the only question you've got left for yourself. Oh, exactly. Uh, that brings you to a quick question. I forgot to ask you when you were laying there, when you were talking about music. So did somebody play music for you or were you just replaying this music in your head and in your because you uh, remembered it? Yeah, I had my iPod with me, but but you know, I think I, because I've had, because I've, you know, collected music for years and gone to gigs for years, I have this kind of, you know, seam of connections in my head where 
songs would play when certain things would happen in my life. And so every sort of great memory, if you will, was associated with a song to, for the most part. And, you know, and I tried to play that out honestly in the book. Some of them are retroactively applied because they fit the chapter or the topic or the paragraph, but they're all from my repertoire, you know, so it's got everything from ABBA right through to Marvin Gaye, you know, so it's kind of got all of these different impacts in my life from different things in in terms of, you know, what songs were playing, you know, and so it was either songs that played at the time or songs that played while I wrote it. We need to share playlist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's some things in common there. (laughs) This is one more thing before you go. So do you have any advice for anybody that is going through or is possibly going to go through what you went through? I think, you know, I think the advice is take the time. You know, the process is individual. I don't think my process is your process. I think practicing death can be that all-encompassing perspective that says, if this was my last day, dot, 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 back to dot, dot, dot again. But what, you know, you fill in your dot, dot, dot. What would you change? What would you change tomorrow? And what are your barriers to doing that? And then, you know, and it's as simple as writing a list. You know, it's like taking it, you know, and it's not, it's not something to be, you know, like, you know, stressed over over you know days or weeks. I think if you if you think if you just go with your gut and your instinct about for an hour of what that is, because I think intuitively we all know, it's just never really played back to us in the way it was in my situation or in other people's situations, where all of a sudden you're faced with the you know the, the proximity of a potential you know leaving this earth and and then then you kind of go oh I know exactly why everything you know so you can, it all comes up. You know, you kind of spews out of you to some extent. I think there's there's a capability within all of us to do that, even in a proxy situation. And if you did that and were honest with yourself, then it would start you down a path that I think you would find sort of, um, you know, important for you and and something that would be very rich in terms of how you feel about your aging process and where you are and where you're prioritising your life. So I think it's take an hour, write down whatever comes into your mind and then start to work through it. It's amazing. Jerry, thank you very much for sharing your journey with me. You have had an amazing life experience that you've transformed into something positive for other people in order to help them move forward in life. And I I commend you for that. Kudos. Thank thank you. you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And, you know, thank you for your listeners to take the time to listen to my story. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.